Hey, everybody, it's Carrie Champion, and this is The Ground Print, a podcast that offers solutions and guidance for the marginalized and those who feel left out. These discussions will act as a guide to mentor those in need of direction and also to inspire those who feel hopeless. We will move the needle forward and speak out on the issues by way of dialogue and telling stories of those who need to be heard. And I remember my first game when in Golden State when we ended up playing against Philly. Don Nelson kind of knew. We got really close. He knew that I didn't like Mo Cheeks at all. And he just told me before the game, he's just like, I'm going to let you go tonight. And I kind of like, what does that mean? He's like, play your game. After I hit the first couple threes, you know, Mo Cheeks started chirping a little bit, like, oh, that was luck. You know, you're not going to hit the next one. I want to say I was probably 9 or 10 for 12 from the field. I had 36 points. And every time I made a shot, I looked over and made sure he's seen it and made sure I said something to him. Matt Barnes is one of those guys. He's one of those guys that you see playing the game and you say, I don't know if I like him. Well, at least when he did play in the league. And actually, that was my thoughts. It may not have been yours. In sports, like in any part of life, you have to go where the opportunity is. And Matt did just that. If you take a moment to listen to his story and understand what he's been through, perhaps you understood that chip on his shoulder, the bravado in which he played with. He spent a lot of time in the NBA playing for various teams like the Lakers, the Orlando Magic, and the Golden State Warriors. Matt believes, though, you have to make sacrifices and work hard for success, which is evident and clear if you pay attention to his journey in the league. He doesn't believe in handouts, which is why even though he was on the 2017 Golden State Warriors championship team, he didn't consider himself worthy of a ring. He'll explain that in this episode, since he was injured and didn't play. But there was more to it. It takes a certain kind of player to be that honest and forthright. We're going to sit back and listen to how honest Matt Barnes is when it comes to who he is as a man on and off the court. All right, guys, I hope you're ready for this one. It is a good one. G-O-O-D-T. Here's my conversation with the Matt Barnes. So this, for me, as I talk to you, is a way in which you are, it's almost like giving advice to your sons, giving your side, like you normally do, people coming up who want to be in the league, who want to, you know, transition after basketball, and Mm -hmm. also how you dealt with all the things you dealt with while playing. So I start first um, with your childhood. You grew up up north, and that's for the folks who live in California. I, I, I can say uh-huh. Bay. Tell me about how you grew up, meaning your family dynamic and where you fit in. Um, I grew up, uh, I was born in San Jose. I lived there till I was about eight, um, oldest of three. So we're all two years apart. Uh, I have a younger sister and a younger brother. Um, biracial, Italian and black. Um, Parents were functioning drug addicts, so they would use drugs, but we never went without. We were always clothed and fed and schooled and homework and all that kind of stuff. But like most parents in the 80s, you know, they partied and enjoyed themselves. So that's kind of the structure I I came up in. Um, Violence, abuse, drugs, um, and just saw a lot at a young age. Um, From there, moved to Sacramento at about eight or nine and was my first taste of racism. Um, Although I'm Italian and black in San Jose, I was around nothing but Asians, black and Mexicans um, coming up to Sacramento for the first time. Um, The schools I remember were predominantly white and that was the first time I really understood um, what race was because I wasn't black enough and I wasn't white enough. So 
I kind of had to fend for myself until people accepted me. So when I look at you, obviously as a black person, I'm not, I would think that they would accept you because, you know, I, I tease you about this, even in life today, you, you know, you're pretty, you're fair. So they, <laughs> they gave you a hard time for being yeah. not white in what ways? What did that look like? Right. Um, like just well, first time I've really been called nigger in my life. Um, like I said, I was, uh, predominantly all white kids. So every recess, you know, I was an athlete. And I always wanted to play whatever everyone else was playing. So with those basketball, baseball, football, man, I want to say starting like third grade, like the kids would never let me play. Like they would stop the whole game to keep me from playing and, and, and would call me names. And it was just disheartening, you know, so I would go home disappointed and, and tell my mom. And obviously she's, you know, you know, console me and hug me. But my dad was on the other side. He's just like, fuck that. You know, if they call you a nigger, fight him. So I learned at like nine years old to kind of fight my way to acceptance and and hmm. crazy enough, ended up fighting my way to friendships with some kids that I, you know, uh, that I still talk to to these days. Uh, let's hold on to fight your way through acceptance, because, you know, what happens to us when we're kids usually defines so many of our issues as adults and how we interact right. as adults. Um, you become a standout athlete early on and, you know, you have something special and you're really tall. Now, do those same white kids who are making fun of you now like you when you get maybe in junior high school and um, high school? Well, I, they started liking me a little bit earlier than that because, like, I, I, when I say I fought a lot, like, I fought so much my mom had to come work at the school. Like, I really fought a lot. So I, I'd say by the time, like, fourth grade hit, fifth grade hit, like, the kids were okay with me. Um, and I think through sports is really what, you know, I, I gained a lot of their acceptance because I was just the best at everything. Uh, I was the best at football, baseball, basketball. So... Through that is kind of where I, I gained some acceptance. And like I said, still have friends that are, you know, 40 years old like me now that started back in that third, fourth, fifth grade time. So you now have this talent. You start to be accepted. You remember what they said because that stuff that never goes away. But now... Now you're, you know, you not only are you, you know, the guy who can fight and people learn to respect you, like there's league prospects. When did you know that that playing basketball would be your professional outlet, that you would do it at a high level? Um, obviously, it was something I aspired to early. But to be honest with you, my first love was football and I was really good at football, too. So it was really kind of like a back and forth what was going to happen. But you couldn't tell me that I wasn't going to play pro in one of them. But, um, you know, I was the number one receiver in the country my senior year, led the nation in touchdowns, All-American, which was higher accolades than I actually achieved in basketball. Um, so coming down to college, um, you know, I, I chose UCLA. Um, and Let me take a moment and just bless you. <laughs> Yes. I bless you for choosing UCLA. Yes. There are so many wonderful redeeming qualities about you, but that by far to me is the best. Probably Continue the best. on, right. fellow Bruin. Right. Continue on. <laughs> right. You know, so obviously, you know, I was I was a big fish in a small pond in Sacramento, and then getting to UCLA, we had the number one recruiting class my year, the number one recruiting class the year before. So it was, you know, it was a not a rude awakening because I was prepared to work, but it was like, okay, you're on the biggest stage now. So. Um, you know, played my freshman year, sophomore year, really started to take off my junior year and realized that although I always thought I was going regardless, that it kind of really kind of started coming into fruition. And, and, and you know, there was talks about me and where I could possibly go. So that I'd probably say like heading into my junior year is when it kind of became a reality. 
Why why um UCLA and not play football? So I my senior year in football in high school, I was chasing the the record for touchdowns and I I had an injury to my toe which started off as turf toe but I kept playing because I was chasing that record and my toe ended up breaking. So um I played through the rest of the season with a broken toe, got the record. Probably only played like eight games my senior year because it was just too painful. I played like the end of my season to end of the playoffs, and then that was it. And then going into UCLA, I had a major surgery. So this is back in 98. It's crazy. It's, it's, uh, that's a really long time ago now. But this was kind of before like the micro, like, you know, like the, like the, um, the, the real, surgery? like the, 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 what is the surgery? The, like the, uh, like the scoping. Like yeah. I have a huge, like eight inch scar on my toe, which took like six months to heal. So, I just decided that, you know, hey, I'm going to miss football season for sure because it's the first sport. Um, I'm just going to stick with basketball, and I kind of just went with that. Okay. So you get to UCLA, and and God bless you for that. We already decided that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you have some wins, a lot of wins, but you're, you you get to the NBA. Uh, 46th pick, I, re- I, I believe. Yeah, uh, mine was a journey. That's good. That's still good. I mean, that to me. Yeah, for yeah. I mean, I was drafted. You know, I mean, I was drafted second round. You know, uh, mid to late second round. But you know, I think people get the misconception of you know you're drafted and you've made it, and that's the furthest thing from the truth. Unless you're a lottery pick, those are the only real. I mean, obviously, first round picks you have a great shot at making the team, but really, only lottery picks are secured back mm. then. Okay. Um, so I go to training camp and don't really get a chance and um, end up in the, back then it was the D league. And that was a humbling experience. You know, like I said, always having visions of making the NBA, getting drafted, but then getting cut before I got a real opportunity. I was like, Oh boy, okay, it's time to work. So I just grinded and really dedicated myself knowing that I was thinking I'm going to be flying in private planes and have a nice car and all this stuff. And I'm in Fayetteville, North Carolina, living basically right near an army base and um taking 11 hour bus rides and if we fly it's like crop dusters like the la bomba plane so i'm scared to death and it's just not the life <laughs> it's just not the life that i kind of envisioned for myself so like i said that was a humbling um experience but also something that kind of lit that fire that i'm just like hey it's either me or them from here on out and that's kind of the chip that was on my shoulder and i made it work the chip you describe is what you were known for most of your NBA career. Um, right. You're known as somebody who always liked to fight. You troublemaker. If no one has seen, you know, post NBA Matt and they know Matt from the league, your reputation was, you know, you were a shit starter. But you said something earlier that I think, I mean, you had to fight your way for respect. I mean, that's how you put it. Do you feel mm-hmm. like that had a lot to do with how you interacted with with players and how you got that reputation in the NBA? Um, I'm going to back up a little bit because I wasn't a shit starter. I was just, wasn't, if the shit started, I wasn't running from the shit. So okay. that's kind of, I was, but you I was never really one. You were a shit entangler. <laughs> yeah. I was okay. never really one, you know, cause I, you know, the, like the way I looked at it was, you know, I looked at myself as a football player playing basketball. So I was always very physical. So football was obviously my first love. I loved being hit, hitting, whatever the situation was. So take the pads off and now I'm playing basketball, I'm still naturally physical and kind of a defensive mindset. So yeah, I, I did, you know, my first handful of years I was playing on one-year contracts. So not only was I auditioning or, or trying to play my best for my current team, but every game I played was a possible audition for another team. 
And it got to a point where, you know, I told myself it was either me or them, you know, so I just had that in my mind. So whether that was basketball or they wanted to take it to fighting or physical play, I was kind of just down for whatever, you know, because like I said, I I was really kind of scratching and clawing to have some sort of footing um, in the NBA. So you're saying you didn't start anything. They came after you and you finished it. Uh, it, Because I'm sure there are some people would disagree. No, I mean, there's obviously situations where there, you know, there was altercations. But when I first got in league, I think I got tried for something you said earlier in this interview because of like the way I look. You know, I'm light skinned. I have tattoos. So like, you know, who is this guy? Like really kind of figure out who I am. You know, am I someone with just tattoos or am I someone that's really kind of with it? And like I said, I really had to kind of almost not fend for myself, but at the same time, just be ready because they were coming at me. And I was the guy that was always guarding the best player. So I'm fresh in the league guarding Kobe and Paul Pierce and, man, you name them, uh, all the best small forwards at the time. And, you know, I was definitely tested. So your philosophy while on these one-year contracts, knowing, and there are so many, so many guys in your position, or they've been in your position, you knew that you were auditioning, and you knew that you had to be at, at 10 at all times, whatever that meant, right? Whatever that right. meant to show whomever that you were capable and ready and willing. Um, right. Was that your recipe for success, if you will, in the league till you, till you finally started getting the recognition you deserve? Yes. You know, it was just always play hard. You know, the one thing I wasn't, obviously the the most talented. I wasn't the biggest, strongest, fastest, but, you know, I've worked the hardest and I play with a lot of heart, you know what I mean? And I just really feel kind of like that, that approach, you know, allowed me to make it through the first, you know, three or four years where I was almost lost, you know what I mean? I was, I was almost out the league, but, you know, like my perseverance and my mindset allowed me to get an opportunity in 2006, 2007 with the Warriors um, four years out of college removed to really kind of really get my first significant playing time in the NBA. And then after that, you know, I was a fixture in the league for the next, you know, I ended up playing 14 years for so the next 10 years. So like I said, it was, it, it was a battle to get there. Um, but definitely my mindset, that chip on my shoulder was, was allowed me to at least last until I can show. Cause like you said, a lot of people were in my position, but for one reason or another, they fall off the wayside. You know, there's only 400 of us and the whole world wants to be an NBA player. So you always got to stay ready because the next man up is really a real mentality, especially in this sport. And you were able to do it so well. Now, there were, I believe, there were other aspects. I think you'd add it to that. And I don't even, and I don't suggest this for everybody, but you had, you had other things happening off the court as well. Um, <laughs> right? right? <laughs> so, right. right. There is some method to that madness, whether you were trying to do it or not. Can you talk about that? Uh, You know, I was just in a unique situation to understand who I was, first of all, in the NBA, which was a role player. And I was completely fine with that. You know, I tried to be the best role player I could possibly be. And then when I went to Phoenix in 2009... 2008 2009 season was the first time I played with Shaq so I'm a new dad of twins with a girl moving to a new city and um was approached about doing a a reality television show and I was very against it at the beginning I'm cool I'm, I'm good like our relationship is new we got new kids I'm in a new city like it's not what I'm into you know so my 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 girl at the time was back and forth with me about it then Shaq started talking to me about it and, and completely painted a picture of something that was seemed halfway decent and it ended up being 
So far the other way. Um, so that's kind of when my reality TV journey began. And, you know, obviously looking back on it now, nearly 10 years ago is when it started, maybe 11 years ago when it started. Although I didn't like it at the time and I didn't really partake in it, it also opened me up to a whole nother side of viewership, side of fans, quote unquote, mm-hmm. sides of reality. Because I, like I said, I was a role basketball player, but then um, in this television world now, which you know is a whole nother monster. So although, like I said, I wasn't a superstar, my name was still moving around because I was in two major worlds at once. Mm-hmm. And I know that's for me, that's how I really came to know you, watching that first couple of seasons <laughs> of Basketball Wives. Right. I, was, right. yeah, I was a local reporter and I'm like, so what happened? I was locked in. Like, And I see why Shaq at the time, because his, his wife, Shaq's wife produced Shawnee, them all. Right. Yeah, his yeah. ex-wife rather. She produced yeah. them all. So it was, I could see why he's like, man, try it out. You, I would have yeah. been like, but are you on it? Was he, he was on it for a hot yeah. minute, right? He did it for a second. It was just a, it was a tough situation. You know, obviously me, him kind of in and out being behind the scenes, me doing two shows. So so when it finally started, it was 2010, 11, and I was actually in Orlando. And this is when the Tiger, all the Tiger Woods stuff was like just starting to kind of break free. And if, you know, in Orlando, you would see Tiger at every single home game before all this, sitting courtside, talking to us, interacting with us. So this is kind of when the show is happening as all this Tiger stuff is breaking. So I remember, I think like the, first show I did where we had some of the women come to our house and we're stay everything is so staged and, and it's crazy to think like people live and die by this reality shit yep. it's so staged and playing the setup <laughs> anyway so we have these women come to the house and they just kind of on on camera start asking me you know like so what you know what about Tiger Woods you know we've seen you talk to him at games and what do you guys do <laughs> what do you guys do on the road when you're in the hotel do your friends do this on uh, do your teammates do that I'm just like and like I stopped taping immediately I'm just like yeah, uh, 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 I'm I'm not doing this. You know what I mean. So, like I said, it was <laughs> something that I was in that I quickly got out of. But it's almost like a gang. It's like blood in, blood out. Once I was in, I was in. And then obviously Gloria stayed on the show um, through uh, contract obligations for like another three years. So we were together during that time. So, like I said, I was just in that reality world, which wasn't happy with at the time. But understanding that kind of helped, like you said, helped grow my brand and, sure. and gave me more recognition. Let's go to the point of if someone's wa- listening, they're thinking, is this the way to do it? If I don't believe that <laughs> any of that has been planned. I think that that right. all happened as as a result of whatever, something, mm-hmm. and then it just worked for you. It may not work it for did. everybody that way, but what I, what I admire the most about you um, is that you've been able to take whatever some might see as not positive and turn it into something to work for you. It may not be yeah. what I want. It may not be what he wants, but it worked for you. Um, right. As you look over your career and you think at all the teams you play with, the few teams, not all, I won't make it seem like that many, um, where do you think you had the most impact impact in terms of being on the court and really enjoying working there? Um, I think th- three teams. Is st- I, I mean, I was solid everywhere I went, but I think the teams that were most impactful and I was in the mix the most at those times were the first Warrior team with the We Believe team. We made NBA history yep. in the 2007 season. Um, and, then, and, then, and then again, my Laker run, to an extent, until Mike Brown came, and then that was I was tired of him, and he and I butted heads, and I was out. But probably the Clippers. The Clippers were, I say, you know, we had the Lob City team. We put, you know, 
tried to put the Clippers back on the map for the first time. Obviously, you know, being from you know, being from LA, it's always going to be a Laker town, but we really took pride with those early Clipper teams on, you know, let's try to be the first. You know, obviously we'll never be the Lakers, but we were beating the shit out of the Lakers at the time. Beat like their worst losses in history, 40, 50 point wins. Yes, Gary, you remember. You know, so we thought we really had something special there, uh, but we could just never put it together um so to let me explain question, to you if this if this teams. was if this was not me interviewing you being respectful i give you this business sir okay you're such a jerk uh, I, you know how i feel about my lakers we've talked about this but i, I see yeah that's fine okay great so clippers the clippers and the warriors you feel like those are where you really and i and i agree Clip, clippers, warriors lakers yeah well, I look, Lop City was was something special. I, I mean, it you know, it all ended up being nothing, but it was something special to watch. And the, you know what I mean? Yeah. You guys did make a name for yourself in this city. And I, when you started to see more people come in and play with you guys, mm-hmm. um, I, I have to ask you, 2017, you don't think that you deserve the chip. You took it. You, you said, no, nah, I don't need it. I'm talking about Golden State Warriors. You felt like you weren't really a part of the team. I don't know why. And then they presented it with you on live television. I remember watching the show and I thought that was special. One, I didn't know why you didn't want it, but I knew why you didn't want it. But two, I thought it was nice that you still had it. No. So it wasn't so much that I didn't want it. So if, you know, anyone that kind of knows me or doesn't know me, my career was a roller coaster, up, down, uh, eight teams in, in, in nearly almost 15 years. So it was just a battle. And I uh, scratched and clawed and earned every penny and every second I played. So the the situation to where I was got an opportunity to win a championship, I was so Kevin Durant, this is the summer that Kevin Durant decided to go to the Warriors and he and I were talking, it would be dope to play with each other, got Draymond involved. So that whole time that everyone was like, where's, where's KD going? You know, we had a good sense or I had a good sense that he was going to the Warriors. But, you know, once he signed, there was really no compared to what other teams were offering me. Golden State didn't have very much money. You know, they were building their team. So I'm just like, damn, all right, well, I missed out on playing with that dynasty. I didn't know it was going to be a dynasty at the time. I just knew they were going to be sick. So I went, I signed a three-year deal with Sacramento thinking I'm just going to go back to my hometown. They just built a new arena. Let's try to make the playoffs, play the Warriors, possibly steal a game. Then get our ass kicked and just kind of make it, you know, bring some kind of excitement back to my hometown. So we're halfway through that season and the Kings decide to trade DeMarcus Cousins after telling I was kind of the boogie whisperer when I got there because he, you know, we we were already really close, and I was someone that management went to, coaches went to, to talk to him. So I was kind of like the middle guy. So I'm getting this information the whole time. Hey, we're not trading to Marcus. He's good. We're going to make this work. I want to say we were either eighth or right at right in ninth, a game out of going into the All Star break, and they trade to Marcus. Um, so I'm thinking to myself, like I'm 37 at this time. I'm like, I don't have time to rebuild. That's not really what I came to do. I thought we were just going to try to make a cool little playoff run. So, you know, I talked to the general manager, and you know, he understood my 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 position. So they, um, we cut ties. Um, obviously, they still had to pay me, but I was free to go elsewhere um, as soon as I break free, I hit Draymond, he starts hitting their side, and there's talk back and forth, and during this conversation, KD actually gets hurt in D.C., so I'm working out the Twins one day, we're at Chipotle eating, and then the next thing I know, somehow Steve Kerr gets my number like, hey, um, we're signing you, we need you in Chicago tomorrow night, and I'm just like, who's this, <laughs> like, what's going on? <laughs> so I end up on the Warriors, um, long story short, playing significant minutes once I get there. Uh, we're probably about, so this is in February, right, the All-Star break. So we're probably about a week, 
maybe two weeks before the playoffs starting, KD comes back. So this is the first time that I actually got a chance to play with KD. The very first game KD comes back, I nearly break my ankle. So I'm out. Man, I was out a good two and a half months. And by the time I felt halfway decent, it was like the end of the second round. We were already 8-0. We are going into the Western Conference Finals. And me being a veteran, realizing how important chemistry is and substitution power, I knew I wasn't really going to get a lot of significant minutes after that. So I was just, you know, a solid vet, encouraging people, talking to people when they needed it. So I really felt like me, as far as being in the foxhole, guarding Kawhi and guarding LeBron during that run, I didn't get a chance to do that. Normally I would have if I wasn't hurt, but I didn't because I was hurt. So I just didn't really feel like I earn the ring. So it wasn't that I didn't want it. Uh, and looking back, I can obviously say my body of work, I just, I earned it, but I just felt like at that particular moment, I felt like I just had the best seat in the world to one of the greatest teams. So I will say the best part about that run, obviously the opportunity was very special, but the twins were with me every step of the way. And obviously Dang. hats off to coach Kerr, you know, he let them come on the road, on the airplane, in the locker room, at the games. You couldn't tell those guys they weren't warriors. And then when, we finally, <laughs> when we finally did win the championship, these guys are front and center on the stage trying to take the trophy from Steph and KD, and I ended up getting them championship rings. So that was the best part about it was my kids got to experience that opportunity with me. That, you, they, I mean, I hope they understand how special that is. That is rarefied air, even for grown men, but let alone be a right. child to have a front row seat to that. That is special. Uh-huh. There's life after basketball, and you've been able to do that in the same way I think you've approached basketball. Like, you hustle uh-huh. your way through, like, no matter what. You're just hustling. I, you know, uh-huh. you can't cheat the hustle because it, it, you get what it gives you. And right. you now have become or working a lot towards shedding what other people feel of you, what images could be of you. I have to ask you, does it bother you if people have a perceived image of you? I mean, I know you work at try, do to to do your business, to do what you want to do, but mm-hmm. does it bother you how people perceive you in some cases no. if they don't know you? You hit it on the head. If they don't know me, it doesn't really matter what they think of me. If you don't take the time to get to know me, I don't really care what you think about me. No, on the flip side of that coin, I realized transitioning into this next space, you know, my name, my reputation is what I have going forward um, post-career, you know. So I, I have done and really gone out of my way to kind of show the world who I am. And I think social media has definitely been able to help that. You know, I've really got to kind of show the real me on social media from being a father and having a foundation and business and all the other stuff I do. I've kind of been able to show the softer side of me via that. But then also kind of discovering my voice as far as being a part of the media, Um, You know, it was something that I never really planned on. You know, it was told I was pretty good when I was playing that, you know, you can you can talk the game, you know, really well. You should look into it when you get done. But it was never really on my radar. And then as soon as I was done, it, you know, it was on my front step. And, I, you know, I kind of started pursuing that. And it, it, it's been great, you know, having the opportunity to work for ESPN and Fox and then luckily enough to have my own podcast, really being able to show who I really am, you know, not the two hours that people saw me on the court or the 30 minutes they saw <laughs> my family on VH1 at the, at the time, you know, really kind of just showing the world who I am. And it's been a tremendous blessing. I would never thought that it would be this smooth of a transition for mm-hmm. someone who had the reputation I had in the NBA uh, post-career. 
What I've seen post uh, outside of you just because I, you know, you want to have your own experience. I think people don't know that you have to have your own experience with anybody, whoever you're interacting with, just your own experience with that person, uh-huh. like a one on one. I've seen that when you make mistakes, even post career, you're quick to apologize. You're quick to say, okay, I, you know, you might be tough in the beginning, you know, as, as most people are, right, who don't want to fall on the sword. But if you've made a mistake or if you've done something and you've had a moment to reflect on it, you're willing to publicly, as you did publicly say something about it, you're willing to publicly apologize. And to right. me, that that speaks to the growth of this, this businessman that is developing. But it also, to me, shows the softer side that a lot of people don't know about. And I want to talk um, about your foundation, um, Athletes Versus Cancer. Can you tell the story? And it's, and, you know, I know it's always just tough to talk about, but it's also inspiring um, about your uh-huh. mother and the foundation you created. Yeah, um, my mom was diagnosed with cancer November 1st, 2007, which was the the season after the We Believe run. Um, So November 1st, the old NBA schedule, that was really the beginning of the season. Um, She was diagnosed November 1st and ended up dying November 27th. So within 26 days of being diagnosed with four cancers all in stage four, um, unfortunately, my mom passed. So um, that season was kind of a blur. but trying to, you know, coming out of the clouds going into 2008, I'm thinking like, what can I do to make sure no one or I can help ease the pain or no one has to go through this was my mindset at the time. Um, other people going through this. So I started Athletes First Cancer and my first goal was to provide uh, free screening for people to get checked out. Um, I would do health clinics and health fairs all the time and, and go into underprivileged neighborhoods and, you know, feed everyone and screen them and, you know, teach them, you know, the, the old additive or added that, you know, knowledge is power, just knowing their body. Um, I transitioned that from that to then providing financial support for anything cancer related, whether it be hospice, whether it be medication, whether it be treatment. Well, unfortunately, sometimes it was funerals, backed up bills. Um, we helped do that. And then my last transition in this space, and I actually have kind of put my foundation on hold the last year because other stuff has been super busy. I don't know how much time my foundation takes, but when we relaunch my foundation again, I'll be teaming up with a few UCs for uh, with a for, with a scholarship program for kids who beat cancer that uh, want to go on to college. So, oh, like I said, great. I just try to provide something in this space because cancer doesn't you don't really understand the magnitude until it hits you. You know, obviously we've been almost immune to hearing that cancer takes people left and right, but until it takes. Um, a family member or or a close friend or, you know, in my situation, my mom, you don't understand, you know, that devastation. So we just try to kind of be there for people who are going through those tough times. I love that about you. I love that you that you are making sure. And it and and by the way, this last year, let's just be honest, has been tough for everybody. So it's okay if we've all taken myself included a minute away from our foundations right. because it's mm-hmm. been it's been tough. Um, yeah. You mentioned your podcast. Uh, well, I listen. I'm impressed. So the first the first time I was aware of all the smoke, I was like, wait, are they smoking? You gotta go on the podcast and smoke without paying attention to it. And then you asked me to come on and I'm like, Well, I, I don't I don't I don't know how to smoke. What don't do you smoke. what do I Yeah, you're like, No, Carrie, that's not what we do, corny. Right. But <laughs> but the the idea of what began as just two homies talking, just in that brain of yours that has so many different things going on and you interview all these greats. Um, you even had the, the, you know, that's probably one of the last interviews Kobe Bryant ever did. Uh, did you imagine, did you have the forethought that what it was when you first started and it would be where it is right now? 
Um, not at all, because I, to be honest with you, I didn't know what a podcast was. Um, it came about with, um, you know, me and Jack were both respectively working for Fox and ESPN at the time, kind of back and forth. Yeah. And we just kept getting a lot of positive feedback from people at Fox, people at ESPN, people on, on, on social media. I know you guys keep it real. We like your take. You know, you're, you're, you're real, but you're fair. Um, you guys need to do something together. And then Fox kind of started putting me and Jack on the same show at the same time. And although we were already cool, like we weren't really thinking about like, let's do something together um, until we started doing stuff together on Fox. And then one day we were at my house um, medicating and, and watching basketball. <laughs> and, I'm, <laughs> and I'm like, you know, I was like, like yeah, we need, we need to do something. It's like, what you mean? I'm like, we need to do something outside of Fox and ESPN. Cause obviously we kind of have to stay in a box when we're with that. And I was just like, uh-huh. let's do a podcast. And Jack's like, what's a podcast? I was like, I don't know, but we could freely talk. <laughs> so that's kind of how it, that's just literally how it started. Uh, fast forward, um, I end up doing speaking on this DeMarcus Cousins documentary that show, Showtime did. I was one of the people that interviewed. And one of the producers is like, hey, I heard you want to do a podcast. I'm like, how would you hear about that? And he's just like, oh, you know, word travels. He's like, you need to talk to Showtime. I'm like, Showtime does podcasts? He's like, no, but they're starting a new basketball segment under their umbrella. I was like, okay. Yeah. So went in there, no Genius. sizzle, no nothing, just bounced some ideas off them. They loved it. And we ended up just winning uh, iHeart Sports Podcast of the Year. So, oh, to, I love yeah, that. Yeah, so to, to, to ever think that, you know, that we would have an award winning and we're up for a couple, we just got not, uh, applied for this Emmy thing for the podcast and all this other kind of stuff. So yeah. to answer your question, did I ever see it going here? No, but I had the idea that if if – if I was able to get help on creating what was in my head, which was just a cool, I wanted people to be comfortable. Like if they're coming over to my house and we're sitting back watching a game, having a drink, like that kind of conversation instead of, you know, having to stick a microphone in someone's face. I, fe- so I felt chill. like if, if I can build an environment where people are comfortable enough to let their walls down that I know I can talk. So mm-hmm. I will be able to get good stuff out of people. And thank you to Showtime. They helped me build this environment where people felt very comfortable to let down their walls. And I was able to humanize people. And then, you know, 66 shows later, you know, we're one of the best podcasts in the space and have, have a, an amazing line of guests, including yourself, that we've been able to interview. Hey, and then the thing about what you all do is that it's it's not in narration format. The reason why I enjoy it is because the best stories are told. Like you just let people tell these amazing stories. Like KG told Mm -hmm. some amazing stories. When when Draymond was faux mad at Chuck, that was an amazing story. Even though I know he's in love with Chuck now. Like I, when I work with them, you should, the the envy. Oh my God. So I'm like, all that smack talking, y'all love each other. They're just in love with each other. It's so, it's funny how y'all be so tough, you know, and then y'all meet, y'all be like, I love you. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But I think it's, I think it's a wonderful thing and it's all Always something special because I think a lot of um, athletes they always don't know how to transition. It doesn't have to be right. working at ESPN or at Fox. It could be creating your own media company. It could be doing what Al Harrington does, you know, in his line. Cannabis, um, yeah. yeah, you do that too. It's, but the yeah. thing is, is everybody can have their hands in something. What's your advice to these guys? These guys who who and they're not even just role players in whatever league. What is your advice to those who are getting ready to transition? And they and they're like, well, what can I do? Should I go talk to talk sports? What would you tell some players getting ready to to retire? And not even and and like I said, they could be at the top of the game, or they don't have to be at the top of their game. 
Uh, you know what's crazy enough is I've I've talked to everyone from guys at the top of their game to guys that have similar career paths as me, and, and the first thing I say is the transition doesn't start when you're ready to retire. It starts four or five years before, and luckily I learned that. You know what I mean? I started investing because I never got a ton of money. I got a, I got good money, but I never got a ton of money. So I always knew that you know. Every team I played on the NBA was just going to be a stepping stone for what was next for me. So, you know, I started investing in things that I liked at about 30, 31, was able to play till I was 37. Um, so it took, uh, I think where a lot of players get lost is thinking that that success is supposed to come like this. You know, we 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 captured lightning in the bottle with all the smoke, you know, because normally stuff doesn't, you don't get that. And you, mm -hmm. It doesn't take off as fast. You know, mm -hmm. it's a process. You know, so we caught lightning in the bottle there. But then with all the other, you know, the, the things that I was into, the, the cannabis investments and the, and, the, and the fresh press juice company that I'm involved in, the hair care product company I'm involved in, I did all these things. Right when I, you know, was turning the corner, getting to 30, 31, thinking, okay, I've already beat the odds. I'm, I'm 10 years in. How much longer am I going to play? I'm not sure, but I got to prepare for what's next. So I luckily started preparing. So what I would tell these people is don't wait until you're done to prepare because that next transition or that next path isn't going to happen like this. And that's mm -hmm. where, you know, athletes mm -hmm. are all, that's where you create habits of alcohol, drugs, going broke trouble you know all that because we're, we're we're so used to being you know when i sit back and look i between college and the nba i have 19 years of like real life basketball like i was like a trained almost robot to speak and then i'm at 37 now retired like yo what you know what i don't have to get up for practice i don't have to do anything technically anymore and i think some guys stay comfortable in that space you know so i just urge people to you know talk and communicate and now more than ever Guys can, you know, you can have, you know, you've got your whole brand at the palm of your hand, you know, and social media is a great platform to be able to get yourself out there, promote yourself, learn stuff, meet people. Um, so I was just always very, my whole career, I was very talkative. You know, I talked to the people on the front row of the games because those are all CEOs of Disney and Fortune 500 companies. And like I said, I was kind of just always thinking ahead, you know, always thinking ahead of, uh, of what was next. And, you know, now my main things right now are content creation and i went to ucla i played for the lakers i played for the clippers so i've got the opportunity to meet everyone i can ever want to meet mentor mm -hmm. and pick the brains of some of the best people yeah. in this space you know and then the cannabis space something i'm always very passionate about now that you know i'm done i'm an advocate for it but also i was passionate about it been doing it for a long time and through my name i'm able to talk to any company now i was just named you know the the the, the senior director of uh, the momentum program for ease which is the biggest delivery cannabis company in the country you know what i mean so it's just doors were open and I, I would tell players to make sure you take advantage of it while the doors are still open while you're still playing because like sure. i said the transition isn't always as fast and smooth uh you know knock on wood that i made it look but then also at the same time i'm aware that and someone just put this in my head recently that like i'm laying the brown print you can not even knowing yep. you know what i mean i like People are looking up to me and Jack now, like, and asking, like, yo, how can we do this? How can we do that? People are looking up to me in the cannabis space, like, yo, how can I do this? How can I do that? I got some amazing projects coming um, in 2021 as far as uh, uh, producing and, and, and being up and acting and all this kind of stuff. So I'm, I'm people are looking at me towards that. So, you know, I just continue to just ask questions, meet people, be kind. You never know who is who, especially in L.A., you know. So that's why I say I'm, I'm cool with everyone, and, and I think that's really helped my, that and being real has helped my transition from sports and and being the villain to a, a serious entrepreneur in, in, in this uh you know this next 
phase of my life. The brown print is always created without you even knowing, as you mentioned, that you're doing right. it because you're right. just like the hustle. Again, you can't cheat it. You get it gives you what you give it. And so in 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 your space, even for me, and I listen to you talk about all these projects, I'm like, I don't even know how he has time to even function and think and compartmentalize and do everything. And I think that's great because that's that's you that fits and suits you. But that's also showing everybody else that it can be done. Even if you, you don't have to do it like, and may he rest in peace, like Bean did it, right? Like he's, you know, Mm -hmm. he had all this money, he had all this access, everybody wanted him. You can do it so many ways. You can do it quietly. There are so many athletes that are doing it quietly. They don't necessarily have to let you know what they're doing. And you look up and you're like, oh, I didn't know that was such and such as company or he works on that project. I think what you're saying, too, is you don't have to be a superstar to be able to transition. No. You know I mean, obviously, Kobe no. was doing everything he was doing. He was doing great. LeBron has Spring Hill and Uninterrupted. And you, you see these bigger stars transition. And their transition, obviously, through their hard work in basketball is probably going to be a lot smoother because they're the superstar. But then sure. at the same time, there's still plenty of people that are very creative, very intelligent, and have the same access to some of these people. And you can transition, too. You know, so, I mean, it, and that's what I think is great is, you know, we're finally to a stage where you know in the african-american community most of us come with nothing so whenever we get something we're like this Mm -hmm. you know like my way or the highway it's only me and i think we're finally starting to understand and learn that you know the 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 hand is much stronger with the other fingers you don't have to be solo you know i mean if we start coming together on projects and i'm happy that you know i'm able to make money with jack in the nba and now we're making money post-career you know together you know i'm uh, you're able to make money in, in in different facets of life um when you just start talking and communicating, you know, KG just came over and filmed his new show over here with my kids. And then we kind of started talking about stuff. And now we're about to do something together. You know what I, I mean? So I just think the fact that we're more open minded and willing to hear and listen and take chances is obviously elevating us in this uh, th- this business space. We're seeing it more and more. And even you mentioned KG, he he was a great actor, even though he's playing himself. He's right. <laughs> he, right. but you see it more and more. There's also the thought that I, I'd like to leave with people. Um, when you're known for one thing, it's always hard to, to, to turn that away. Like it's always hard to have people not know me as Carrie from ESPN. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and listening to me speak on other topics besides sports is, is hard for some people to digest because they don't think that's who I am. But, um, I applaud you for letting people know that there are so many layers and it's not that she's, you know, it's and I don't want to say not more than just an athlete, but there are so many layers to every human and they just need right. to be given the opportunity. And you have been given the right. opportunity and you were prepared for the opportunity. I thank you so much for coming on the Brown Print. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything else that people can know right away outside of that? Congratulations on your award. You deserve it. Um, and what else can we see immediately? What's tangible? I know you're working on a lot of things. Um, we have some big announcements coming up. I just sold my first show to Showtime which um, we'll be announcing soon, but it's similar to, um, oh, I forget the name now. What's Little Dicky Show? Have you seen Little Dicky Show where he plays himself? Oh, I forgot the name. It slipped my mind. Anyway, I'm playing myself in kind of like a trend, like a, a almost, you know, a scripted fictional, non-fictional uh, show where, you know, kind of my transition from an MBA vet to a single father of three navigating life it was as what's next. So we are you putting, are you putting in all your girlfriends in there? Um, you want to come on? Yeah, I'm sure. For, I'm sure. looking for. 
Yeah. No, but uh, I want the real story. I want to know what it was like on the road when all that tiger things were. What happened on the road, guys? So it's, like- gonna, <laughs> so it's gonna so it's gonna get real. So I have that Showtime show. Um, I'm heavy in the politics space now. You know, I, I I've you know followed the mayor Kevin Johnson. It's the former fair mayor of Kevin Johnson in Sacramento kind of inspired yep. me. So I'm on I'm in the political space now. Fortunate enough to interview Joe Biden before. I remember uh, the 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 the, uh, the 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 vote back in November. So I'm really heavy in that space and doing some cool stuff in there. So Dave really was just, the show. Dave was the Dave. show. Dave. Yes. So yeah, so so I got something similar to that coming out um, as far as making my acting debut and and producing debut, Good for producing you. a few other uh, pieces. So just excited, like in this content space, and obviously appreciate you because you know you're someone I met a while ago, and I you've been in this space, so I've been able to lean on you and ask questions. You know, always give it to me real. I asked you what I think. What was my last thing? I, should my agents be taking the, 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 yeah. the you know the certain <laughs> percent? You know what I mean? So I I'm appreciate like, nah. you because you know. <laughs> Right. You're in this space and, you know, you're an open book and all you do and give back is amazing. And, you know, I appreciate our friendship and the ability to kind of pick your brain because, you know, I'm in your world now and um, it's a cool world. So thank you. Thank you, Matt Barnes on The Brown Print. Thank you so much, my friend. No, thanks. Thanks for having me. Matt Barnes isn't your typical NBA player. In fact, uh, I, as mentioned in the podcast, really didn't know who he was until I saw him on Basketball Wives. I hate to admit that being a sports journalist, but I mean, his real claim to fame in terms of mainstream was a reality show in the beginning. Uh, But what I like about Matt the most and the reason why I feel as if he had staying power was because he had to fight his way to acceptance. His exact quote Fight your way to acceptance. That was one of the biggest takeaways for me. I believe, and I'm not saying physically fight, but I believe that is how he was able to succeed in the NBA. Matt knew that he was going to be one of those players who would just be a role player. He may not be Kobe Bryant or Paul Pierce or Kevin Durant, but he knew that he had a role to play. And he went into every single game with that mentality. He did that on and off the court. Number two, don't wait to pivot. You should start thinking about pivoting while you're still playing the game. And I think that is so smart for so many athletes. When they get ready to retire, they don't know what they want to do and they find themselves in this black hole, if you will, not knowing if they should look elsewhere or they should try to start a business. If you began to think about what's next after playing the game while you're playing the game, in Matt's case, it started three to five years before he retired and he found himself ready to hit the ground running once he left the league. He, in fact, was creating a brown print without even knowing it. And for that, I thank him because that, to me, is what so many players and people in life should really start looking at. What's that next transition while you're actually working? Last but not least, focus on your craft. Um, And that is true. When Matt was playing in the league, he knew that he only had one opportunity to show what he had. When he wasn't a starting player, when he knew that he was just a role player, there was always someone younger and perhaps better and more willing to work harder that was right behind him. He made the main thing the main thing. Next Man Up is a real challenge in the league. It's also a real challenge in life. And so I respect him for having that mentality. And that, I believe, is why he has created his own unique brown print. I hope you guys enjoyed this edition of The Brown Print. I'm Carrie Champion. I'll talk to you guys next week. 
That's it for this week's episode of The Brown Print. Let's keep the conversation going online. You know I love to go online. Follow us on Instagram at The Brown Print Podcast and on Twitter at Brown Print Pod. Follow me, Carrie Champion, on IG and Twitter. You can find me at Carrie Champion. Don't at me if you got attitude. Well, okay. We'd love to hear your feedback. Or if there's a specific topic you want us to tackle or guests that you want us to have on, please reach out to the brownprintpod at gmail.com. Again, at brownprintpod at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, share it with your friends. It helps spread the word. It is so important that we stay active and vocal. We'd greatly appreciate it if you showed us some love by leaving a five-star rating and a positive review. If you do not, I know you are a hater. Ha <laughs> ha. Kidding. Kind of. Not really. Meanwhile, uh, again, five-star rating and positive review. We need it. It really helps the podcast grow. The Brown Print is a Gallery Media Group original production.